Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for another day, just to be here right now in freedom, being willing and able to receive your word implanted through your Holy Spirit. We're grateful, Father, for this opportunity. Please don't let us become familiar with this thing. Father, also at this time, we pray for those in our church family here that are sick, that are struggling. They want to be here, many of them, and you know their hearts, Father. We ask that you give them comfort and uh, let them know that we're with them in spirit. Give them encouragement, even through tonight's message. And Father, most of all, we're thankful and grateful for your Son, Jesus Christ, the one and only true God who became man for our sins for our sake he went to that cross father we ask that you bless this message guide us and teach us by your holy spirit we ask these things in christ's precious name by the power of your spirit we pray amen who will separate us from the love of christ let's begin tonight with an illustration that the Lord gave us to show us how relentless his love is. And I hope that's what you see as we go to these illustrations that he has given us in his word. So let's start by turning in our Bibles to Matthew 18, verse 12. We are going to review some of what we uh, heard on Sunday as normal, but uh, the Spirit prompted me this morning to start this way. And again, I hope you keep your eyes on the relentless nature of His love being our topic is who will separate us from the love of Christ. Matthew eighteen, twelve. Jesus said, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more, more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. So first of all, there we get a glimpse of the heart of God. The heart of God. Uh, he's not content with the ninety-nine. He's concerned about maybe just that one that would be easy to forget about, easy to turn your back on, at least from a fleshly point of view, when everything else is going fine. Um, but this is the heart of God. So go to John 10, verse 11, and let's see a similar concept. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own 
know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. As opposed to a bad shepherd who, in verse 13, isn't concerned about the sheep. And what's the difference? What's going to motivate a shepherd to leave the 99 and go find the one, which could be a horrible event? It could involve such work and suffering to go find that one. And it's his fault anyway for straying off, right? What's the motivation? Only true love can motivate that thing to take place. Only true love, only God, God's love that is that powerful. What does a good shepherd encounter as he searches for his lost sheep? As he willingly goes to any length possible to rescue them. Try to picture this. Out in the field, out in the wilderness. In this passage, it's wolves that are in the way. But he willingly goes through them to rescue his sheep. I hope you are seeing the picture of God's love in action. And we know from David's days as a shepherd. David was a shepherd of his father's sheep, by the way. And he encountered and killed both a lion and a bear, according to 1 Samuel 17. All out of love for the sheep. That's quite a risk to take, take for a little sheep when you've got 99 other ones too. You're risking your own life to save this, in many cases, disobedient sheep. But that's what love does. And as our Lord himself said, what greater love is there when a man is willing to lay down his life for his friends? Obviously none. So on the board, regarding the good shepherd, the Lord pursued us with that kind of relentless love, which we just read about in Matthew 18, 12 through 14, and John 10, 11 through 15. And now that we believers are saved, how much more should we be confident in his love? Think about that, folks. We're on the other side now of the equation as a believer. He loved us that way before we were believers, while we were his enemies. How much more should we be confident in his love? It just makes me think of what a loser I am some days of not trusting in his love and that his love can't be conquered, interrupted. Nothing can separate us from his love. And here I am questioning and doubting that when he's already done the greatest thing possible and brought me over to the other side by grace. We're so foolish. But that's what we see in Romans 8, 28 through 35, that rationale. If Jesus left the 99 sheep behind who were safe and ran after you through all sorts of hazards to save you, how much more should you rest in his love now that you've turned to him as your Lord and Savior? It reminds me of Romans 8.28. So let's go there and read this passage. It's a perspective that as believers... We should be so rejoicing in 
because he already did the greatest and hardest thing out of love. And now that he saved us, Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How silly we can be as children walking through our day, doubting our Heavenly Father when he's already done all of this for us. Again, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, the point on the board. The Lord pursued us with that kind of relentless love of a good shepherd. And now that we believers are saved, how much more should we be confident in his love? Infinitely so, we should be. And it's knowing this love that the Lord has for us that will give us his peace. And this is something that God was kind of putting in my soul, and he's so faithful. Um, you know, a week ago, he's like showing the connection between love and peace. You know, and as a teacher, I, I guess he's, you know, he's always preparing me. He's always getting me ready and puts things in my, on my heart, my soul. And then on Sunday, this same connection to love and peace came out. I literally started laughing during class, not loudly. I held it in, obviously, but I literally started laughing at my seat because it was so funny and the timing of it was so uncanny. But it's knowing this kind of love that God has for us that will give us the peace. How, do you, how can we have his peace or experience his peace without knowing and believing this type of love he has for us? Can't do it. You can't have it. We're the only ones, by the way, that get in the way of enjoying his peace. Turn again to John 14, 26. And let's be reminded that the Lord gave us his peace, left his peace with us as he went to heaven. John 14, 26. The Spirit's weaving some things together. So, you know, be ready, be flexible in your thoughts and, and you know, how these things work together in unison. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Notice, 
We shouldn't be fearful. Remember, there's no fear in love. And perfect love casts out fear in 1 John 4. And his love is a perfect love. So it's legit. It's not like our love that we, we fail once in a while, but we don't live in it. He has literally a perfect love. So that's why there's no fear in God's love. And that's why we can have his peace. Again, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Why? Because my love's perfect and undefeatable. On the board, my peace I give to you uh, from MacArthur. We saw this on Sunday. At the individual level, this peace, unknown to the unsaved, secures composure in difficult troubles, as in John 14.1, dissolves fear, as in Philippians 4.7, and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony, Colossians 3.15. Looking back to Colossians 3, and remembering our series title, the Spirit brought out the connection between love and peace on Sunday, as he already did at the beginning of this message, really two different times. Go to Colossians 3.14 again. We saw this on Sunday, Colossians 3.14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we might say God's love is a source of peace for us. We might say God's love is the source of peace for us. Here we see love brings unity. And when we have unity, guess what? We have peace. Unity means standing as one, right? We have peace. We don't have anything between us. What brings that? Love. Operating in God's love. But there's also the inner peace of Christ that we're each blessed with because as believers we know the love of God. So we can have peace in the body, right, as a a unit, unity, operating as a unit because of love, but we can also have peace in our own souls even when we're alone battling life, battling the things we all battle. We all have our quote-unquote demons that we uh, struggle with. Um... We can have this inner peace, too, because we know the love of God and because we know its characteristics, especially now being on the other side of the equation. So think about it. If we can't be sure about God's love for us, how can we possibly have peace? How can Jesus tell us he's leaving us his peace if his love could possibly fail us? Even if there was a small chance that his love could fail us, how could we have peace? So if he's telling us to have peace, it's got to be for a darn good reason. It's because everything is finished. It's because God's love is unconquerable. Can't be overcome by anything. So we have just reason to have peace. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing, in Romans 8. And therefore, as his adopted children, we truly have nothing to fear. 
Do you see the connections? We truly have nothing to fear because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So therefore we can enjoy his peace that he left with us. So his peace is available to us. The same peace Jesus had with the Father. That was perfect. Perfect peace. Because Jesus really knew and understood God the Father's love and how perfect it was. And what also came out on Sunday is his peace is not only for our own benefit and confidence, but also a source of light to the world that has no hope without Christ. I hope, I hope none of you take for granted the hope that you have in Christ. I hope you're not so used to it. And you don't forget the times when you didn't have the hope of Christ. Because without Christ, we literally have no hope. Right? If, picture yourself being an unbeliever right now in this world, the directions it's going. Literally not knowing what's next. Literally not knowing where you go when you die. Um, why you're alive, etc., etc. There's no hope. People out there are desperate, unlike us as believers. So the peace that, that God gives us, that Christ gives us through his love, is a source of light to the world, to those that are desperate, that have no hope. And our light shines in the form of peace many times. That's what people see. As the Spirit brought up last week about when we give the good news and we're willing to let the chips fall where they may without trying to convince somebody, etc., they see that peace shining through. So people will see our good works done in the Spirit. And they see that as a bright, warm light. For example, love. Good deeds done in, in God's love. It's like a bright, warm light in this dark cave. It stands out so much in this world, and we should not underestimate that. That when we live in obedience to God's commands, and we love like He loved us, and forgive like He forgave us, when we live in obedience to these things, it is, it is like night and day. It's just not even close. So that's the light that people are, are looking for, and they take note of it. They might not say anything to you, but they're always <laughs> taking note in the back of their mind. And one day it might add up to something wonderful, that seed planted. Turn, uh, uh, actually don't turn there on the board. Look at Ephesians 2.10 in the Amplified. We saw this on Sunday. For we are his workmanship, his own master work, a work of art, created in Christ Jesus, reborn from above spiritually transformed, renewed, ready to be used for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand, taking paths which he set, so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. And we saw the perspective on Sunday. We are lights in the world, Philippians 2.15, that have been prepared before the foundation of the world, for good works. And here's the thing. This type of thing on the board, us living in these good works that God prepared beforehand, us letting our light shine, this has to point to our sanctification. This has to be a work of God in us. I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't do this on my own. 
I've tried. I can't do it in my flesh. I can't strive that way. But God is working out this thing in us, and it is truly supernatural. He's given us a new nature, and he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk by faith and hold on to his peace as we go forward by faith in certain things that we're not sure of. So these are supernatural works of God in creatures that still carry around a decaying body with a sinful nature. This is another reason we know it's a supernatural work of God. How, how do we do anything truly good in our current state, in, in this body, in this flesh? It's, it's God in us. It has to be. You know, that um, I was watching some singing on TV the other night, right? And um, certain people just have a gift. You know, someone said, how do they sing like that? Is there any doubt there's not a God when you see that type of a gift that someone truly has that, that particular kind of gift? So that's like a physical, something we can see, that it's a supernatural thing. It's a gift of God. It is, you, you can't just can't explain it. And so it is with the peace of a believer walking around in this body, holding on to a sinful nature all the while. How does anything good like love and peace come out of us? Totally a work of God. And this, by the way, should give us more peace. That this is what God's doing in us. It's not of our own doing. Just look what God has done in your life so far. You know, some of you are like, eh, not too much. Oh, stop it. Think about yourself five years ago. Think about things that you do now that you, you wouldn't have done five years ago. I mean, we can all think of some things that God has brought us along, transformed us. So that should give us more peace, too. He's the one that's at work within us. So by understanding and believing, sanctification is a work of God within us. All we do is surrender and be willing to be used by our loving master. Right? That's all we do. That's all he's asking of us. Remember, remember willingness? That's what he's asking of us. He knows we're not able. So we believe, we trust, we have hope, and we have peace in the fact that he's at work within us. So we don't strive the wrong way in our own efforts and plans. So again, this series title is Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ? And the bold conclusion in Romans 8 is that no one and nothing can. So it's impossible on the board. It's impossible to be separated from the love of the perfect one. That's what Paul's going on about in Romans 8. And God being perfect... There's no like little small chance that something's, you know, he's going to change his mind. There's none of that because he's perfect. And so as the Spirit's been declaring to us, we don't despair. We have the perfect hope, a hope that can't be denied in the end. Despair is not meant for the children of God. We always have the hope of God in Christ, always, forever. 
no matter how bad things get on this earth, this is just a drop in the bucket. We always have the hope of Christ to cling to that is unbreakable. And as scripture tells us, he will never leave us or forsake us. So we have his peace and we don't despair even when things might be perplexing or pressing on us from all directions, to borrow from 2 Corinthians 4. And I want to take another look at that verse, which we saw last week. Uh, turn again to 2 Corinthians 4. Because it's basically, basically telling us we can have his peace in all situations, even though things might be making us sad, being stressful, etc., etc. We never despair because we have the great hope. And by the way, this is a perspective, okay? We're talking about the right way to look at things. That's what perspective is, the right way to look at things. Remember our series on the eyes of our heart being enlightened? So what's the perspective in this verse? What's the right way to look at challenges and persecutions and any kind of testing in this life? What's the right way to look at it? 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Amazing how the sufferings of life, the quote-unquote bad things, turn into something so beautiful on the other side because of God's power. And what does it say in verse 10? Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. So we share in his suffering, right? so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. What was one of the most spiritual moments in human history? When Jesus was hanging on the cross, unfairly, unjustly, willingly suffering, and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. How many lives did that statement change throughout the course of human history? What did it take? It took going through a process a suffering, a sanctification. And the fruit of it was magnanimous. Life-altering. So we have the opportunity to carry about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. And you're right, you can't do it. But God can, if you're willing. He can use you for phenomenal wonderful things like letting our light shine in this dark world under the most adverse circumstances. It's supernatural. Do you believe God can use you to do great things? If you don't, you don't believe God. Forget about you being able to. You're not even in the equation. The only thing in the equation is your free will, your willingness. God can use us all to do wonderful things if we're willing. So we have the ability and the gift to see above it all. Uh, because we can be filled with the Spirit anytime we're humble before Him. 
and we can see things as God sees them. This is the perspective he's given us. He's like, don't despair. You can be perplexed all you want. That's fine. You're in the devil's world right now, and you don't see me, Jesus might say. You can be perplexed and pray about it, but don't despair. As came out on Sunday, we believers have the confidence that we will never permanently despair because we're in Christ. In other words, we have a hope that cannot fail. Impossible because he's perfect. So we always have hope. And if you always have hope, you don't despair. On the board, do not despair. A believer's position in Christ guarantees that despair will never be permanent. The best the kingdom of darkness is able to do is trick a believer into thinking their desperation is permanent. And he succeeds, unfortunately, too many times with believers. But that's the best he can do, is trick us, kind of like a mirage, or as it says here, like a, a ruse. Perspective delivers us immediately. Or in other words, a change of perspective delivers us immediately out of this false mindset. The Word gives us this. It's been encouraging to see that even Paul despaired at times, yet he knew he was delivered by Christ and even will be delivered in the future, he said. See, right now he's in heaven, so he's looking back on it all. But at the time he wrote this, he was confidently asserting, I just despaired. Go to 2 Corinthians 1 again. 2 Corinthians 1. I just despaired for my life even. Things were so bad. But he delivered me, and he will deliver me again, even for all eternity. He had the hope. 2 Corinthians 1.8 For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's the purpose of trials and tests and maybe even facing death? What's the purpose? Right there. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Until your back's against the wall, you might not get to experience that kind of great faith, for lack of a better way to put it. You might not be able to really say, okay, am I going to keep trusting in myself in this situation? I can't anymore. There's no other option. I'm about to die. Lord, I place my trust in you, all of it. You raise the dead. You're the one. And that type of freedom, that type of victory spiritually, never comes without sanctification, living out life, right? We talked about going through trials and that thing called time, allowing us to get to places that, you know, we didn't think we could go. The fruit far outweighs the suffering or the testing. And Paul goes on to say in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. 
So you see a lot going on there. Even though we will despair at times, like Paul did, we can have confidence, like Paul did. He knew his deliverer. Paul knew his deliverer. And if you're a believer, so do you. So we saw this balanced statement the last couple lessons. On the board, we all experience some level of despair from time to time, no matter how mature we might think we are in Christ. We just saw that in 2 Corinthians 1. And we saw this too. Ebbs and flows are normal in the process of sanctification. You're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have times of despairing. Even though it's not what God wants for you, we're going to have times where we, we fall, we fail. So that's quote-unquote normal in the process of sanctification. What's not normal is apostasy. And therein lies the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. So as came up on Sunday, if you're unexplainably drawn back to Christ, no matter what you go through, no matter what you might be feeling or struggling with right now, if you're unexplainably drawn back to Christ, that's a wonderful sign in your soul. It's even a supernatural sign that you are saved, that His Spirit is in you, not leaving you, not forsaking you. You're in Christ. That's a wonderful, wonderful sign. When all other hopes fail, when you even fall into despair, but you fall back on Jesus Christ as your only hope, that's a beautiful supernatural thing. The evidence that nothing can overcome you, but we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That's an indication, that's like a green light in your soul when you always turn back to Christ, regardless of what you're going through. So rejoice in the fact that you fall back on Christ when you fail, that you have His presence in your soul. That's part of the peace and security we have in Christ, and so we don't stay in despair. So Satan, this came up on Sunday too, he tries to sow seeds of doubt in us. And we have to learn, when we get seeds of doubt in us, we've got to immediately recall where it comes from. Seeds of doubt always come from evil. Whether it's Satan in the kingdom of darkness, or our flesh, or the lies of the world system, whatever it is. Seeds of doubt always come from a place of evil. So when you get those doubts, right? Remember we talked in the past about not even entertaining them. Don't even play around with them. Don't let them fester. Kick them out. But when you get those doubts, immediately recognize where they come from and don't be deceived. Know that the liar is whispering in your ear. So we instead can change our perspective, like on a dime, and live in his supernatural peace which brings glory to God in front of man and angels. You could, you know, be in a bad place for a while. You could be in a bad perspective. But you have the ability and power to change that if you choose, if you look at things from God's perspective, the Word of God. We have the peace and the knowledge and the wisdom that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
Amen? If you have that peace and knowledge and wisdom that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, what's, you shouldn't feel conquerable at all, no matter what you're going through, facing death even. You shouldn't have that, and we all fail, okay? I'm going to keep throwing that out there, I guess, but we shouldn't have that if we really trust that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We're already victors, eternally speaking, unbreakable. So we all fall at times, but as we saw in Proverbs, the righteous man gets up and turns back to God. We all need to repent at times and turn back to God for his wonderful forgiveness experientially in our daily walk. And we also, by grace, need to give others the same forgiveness in their daily walk when people sin against us. And this came up on Sunday. This is so important. On the board, we believers should be eager to forgive, to quickly restore peace in God's family whenever possible. We should be so excited to be able to do this, to have this opportunity, because we know how important it is to God. So even when someone sins against us or wrongs us, whether they know it or not, we should be eager to forgive, to quickly get things back in unity in the family for the sake of love and peace and God's glory. Look at it as a privilege. God forgave me again. Now I get to forgive you. God forgave me an infinite amount of times. Now I have a chance to forgive you. This is amazing. You might say to somebody, or at least in your heart, I can't believe you did that to me. You ever say that? <laughs> I can't believe they did that to me. But then if you step back, you say, oh, actually, I can believe it. Why? It's just in nature that got a hold of you. Aren't you? I know. Why am I being even emotional about it? It was just sin nature that got a hold of you. And now it's my turn to forgive you, as I know you might need to be forgiving me in the future. Right? <laughs> it always comes around. We all make mistakes. We all let each other down. So on the board, again, we should be eager to forgive. It brings tremendous glory to God. On the board, forgiveness knits imperfect members of a family together. It fosters the unity of faith as something real and attainable in time. It is a primitive desire of the one who loves. It is a primitive desire of the one who loves. The more you gain God's love or grow in God's love, the more you can have this as a desire to forgive. You'll want to forgive even when you're hurting or been hurt. Love gives, remember. As Christ's love gives to us and saves us and nothing can separate us from his love, we should make sure we don't allow anything to get in the way of God's love flowing between all of us. And it is a test. I'm not saying it's not a test because our flesh wants to jump right in there and take offense, and get emotional. But think about it, right? Nothing can separate us from Christ's love, so why should we let anything separate us from 
is love staying flowing in the family. We don't want to interrupt that. As Holy Scripture instructs us, if it's in your power, be at peace with all men. Pretty simple. That's the wish of your Heavenly Father. If it's in your power, be at peace with all men. On the board, Mark 9.50, Jesus said, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Remember that verse about having your speech seasoned with grace? Right? Salt's a great seasoning. Always, whenever they have the opportunity, live in grace, which is love. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Season the situation between you. Romans 12, go to Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18. Again, we should be eager to forgive. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to live in the supernatural way of God. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's our choice as believers. Do it. Forgive others for Christ's sake. You can either be overcome by evil, such as the whispers of the sin nature that you've been hurt and they don't deserve it anyway, or you can choose to overcome evil with good, the power and love of Christ himself in you. It takes surrender, I'm not going to lie. It takes willingness. That's about it. It takes humility. And all you got to do is remember how many times He forgave you to get in the right frame of mind. On the board, it's religious people that are unforgiving because they're unloving. They are unloving because religion has never saved a soul. They are selfish because that's their very nature. Turn again to Ephesians 2, verse 3. Unfortunately, I think of quite a few people in my head when I look at this point on the board of people that I know are religious in some way. They go to church, but they're bitter. And it makes me sad. They're bitter. They don't have the love of God because they're unwilling to forgive. How could someone do that to me? And that attitude terminates and sticks with them like a bad odor. You can see it in their face. And that's what religion produces. Not good fruit, bad fruit. So again, religious people are unforgiving because they're unloving. They're unloving because religion has never saved a soul. They're selfish because that's their very nature. They're, they're stuck in the old nature. They haven't been given a new one. Ephesians 2.3 among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, if you know, by the way, if someone sins against you, okay, here's a question. Someone sins against you. If you know it's their sinful nature 
that's doing the sinning against you, why do you get surprised or insulted as though you yourself have never fallen? Why do we ever get surprised or insulted? It's a sinful, it's, it's the evil roommate, right? Whatever. You got a hold of that person. But people that are in the flesh love to keep score. The flesh loves to make payments and receive payments. Make payments and receive payments. And keep score, and hopefully you're, at, you're ahead at the end. Whatever that accomplishes. Some kind of insecurity in your soul is settled, I guess. That's the flesh, though. And that's an economy, as Pastor called it. There's always a price involved with the flesh. There's always a cost for goods and services instead of the willingness to excuse a debt. That's why the spiritual life is, you know, supernatural. God's ways are supernatural. A willingness to forgive a debt, that is foreign language to the world. To truly, totally forgive a debt without holding something over someone's head, that is a foreign language on the board, the fleshly economy. Every economy uses currency for the exchange of goods and services. The currency the human flesh uses by nature is anti-grace. Nothing is free. Let's keep score because I want to be really ahead by the time I'm 80 years old. And then I die. Talk about no perspective. But Satan's got them deceived with a veil over their eyes. This is what life's about, right? Most toys at the end wins, right? Most people that I can get it over on wins. I'm the king of the hill. And Satan's got people so duped, right? I mean, I get so sad when I see that in some people. I'm like, oh, man. I just wish they could see, but they can't see yet. Because the Spirit hasn't opened their eyes yet. They're too arrogant. But this is the flesh. This is how it works. It's anti-grace. Nothing is free. As Pastor said on Sunday, that is all we really ever need to know about man's natural estate in his flesh. For everything else in terms of his thinking and behavior may be derived from this one principle. It's because this one principle is what constitutes his motivation. And as the Bible says, motivation is what counts. God looks at the heart. So back to our point on the board about the fleshly economy. In the fleshly economy, forgiveness is a bargaining chip, a debt to be paid. That's because without grace, the expression of godly love, nothing is freely given. You know, you probably can think of times when people have used this, when they've given the impression that they've forgiven someone, but they have a string attached in some way, whether it's emotional, material, there's something they keep holding over them, but they're acting holy, like I just forgave that person, and yet it's not freely done. The inevitable result of this type of thinking is subjectivity, always measuring and accounting and comparing. But what can man, uh, or what man can say what the right set of scales is? This came out again on Sunday. What man can say how much is too much or how much is too little? Who's going to be right? Who's going to draw the line? 
The great thing is, for those who turn to God's word in humility, it's out of our hands. We can let it go. Because the scales are in God's hands. And the truth can set us free. On the board, Proverbs 16.11, A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are His concern. So we are to concern ourselves with what the Word of God says and fall in line with that, with Him. The weights of the bag are His concern. Thank God. We need to stop playing God, which is what the flesh likes to do. Turn again to Colossians 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I'm far from perfect with regards to forgiving others. I've carried my share of bitterness and resentment at times. But a couple of times when I carried the right perspective, I had people ask me in the past, even believing friends, how can you forgive them after what they did to you? And my only response in those good moments when I had the right perspective was I have no choice. How can I not forgive them? Who am I to not to deny them forgiveness? I literally have no choice. Again, look at the end of verse 13. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. That's the only right godly perspective to cling to. Look at verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This came out on Sunday as well, if you remember, on the board. I put it on the board for you. We believers have a divine scale of values that induces peace, mercy, forgiveness, all because of one motivating factor, divine love. Love's the source. These things flow out of us. These supernatural things flow out of us when we submit to God's scale of values. If Jesus Christ loved us that way, without any strings attached, then we should be overwhelmed and humbled so much by that that we can't refuse forgiveness to anyone in need of it. Honestly, we're just not... If we have trouble forgiving, we're just not humble enough. We're not... We have the wrong perspective. We're not considering how much we've been forgiven of. It's really that simple. We're being arrogant. That should be the attitude of our heart, though, that if we're truly grateful for how the Lord forgave us so freely, how can we not pass it on? 
also from the Spirit on Sunday on the board. The base primitive of the Holy God of the universe is that love reigns supreme. Let love reign supreme in your life. Abide in my love, Jesus said. Right? Stay close to me. Follow my commands. It's going to give you peace that's beyond human comprehension. Stick with me. Keep learning about my love. The base primitive of the holy God of the universe is that love reigns supreme. In other words, maybe another way to put it, love must be out in front at all times in our lives. Love must be leading the way as though we had an escort. Love must be out in front of us, everything we do, every situation. And then, guess what? We fulfill the whole law. We bring tremendous glory to God because love's out in front. So we don't do, any, we don't do anything that love wouldn't do. Right? So, therefore, our currency in God's economy is grace because love produces grace. Love produces living in grace treating others in grace. Again, if we're truly grateful for how the Lord forgave us so freely, then the only keeping track we do is so that we can give thanks. This came out on Sunday. What a wonderful way to think, right? Again, if we're truly grateful for how the Lord forgave us so freely, then the only keeping track we ever do is just to make sure we give thanks to others and to God. And the gratitude for forgiveness brings us joy and peace in our daily walk. By God's grace, our debt has been forgiven, never to be remembered again. Right? Our debt's been forgiven, never to be even remembered again. God says, I don't remember your sins anymore. In the book of Hebrews. And that's why, in a nutshell, we should always be grateful. Why should we always be grateful? Because something eternal has been accomplished for us. Eternal forgiveness. Think about that. You have eternal forgiveness. That shouldn't be possible. Not from a human point of view, right? I keep sinning. I keep letting God down. But you have eternal forgiveness through the blood of Christ. So this should be I don't know, automatic? This should be easy to do. I, I, how can I stop giving thanks if I have the perspective of eternal forgiveness that can't be broken? 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How can we ever stop giving thanks for eternal forgiveness for undying love that can't be disrupted or overcome. For the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So as we close, consider this. God has given us eternal life and eternal forgiveness by grace. So every day we wake up as a reminder that God loves us so much, He left behind the 99 and he searched for us, each individually, the lost one, no matter what kind of horrible attacks he had to face. He willingly laid down his life for us so we could be saved once for all through him. 
And so, on the board, we have peace as we rest in his unconquerable love. And we have never-ending gratitude for his eternal forgiveness. This should be like our estate. This should be what we live in every day. This is how a believer who is humble lives and thinks. We have peace as we rest in his unconquerable love, Romans 8, and we have never-ending gratitude for his eternal forgiveness. Amen? All right, let's close. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your grace, and for your spirit bringing these things together and weaving them together so perfectly for us in, in small portions, so to speak, so that we can eat and digest them. We're very grateful, Father, eternally grateful for your forgiveness and your love that has been accomplished once for all on our behalf through the blood of Christ. Father, help us never be familiar with the love of our Good Shepherd and what He did for us, laying down His life for His sheep. Even though we were so unwilling and disobedient and selfish. Father, thank You for coming after us. And we also thank You for keeping us. As Your Word says, we cannot be separated from Your love. Father, please bless us all as we go. Give us traveling mercies on the way home. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your Spirit. Amen.